Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We live with grief. We don't get over it, nor do we need to. Closure is a perfectly good word in real estate. When you close a deal, or in the business community, when you close a deal, uh, what people mean when they say now they find the body, they have closure. They don't mean closure. They mean they now have the certainty that he is dead. So they misuse the term closure, which means close the door. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's misleading to people. It's, I think it's harmful to people. It's cruel to people to let them think there is such a thing as closure. We live with suffering, and indeed it gets less and probably farther and farther apart, what they call oscillation now in the research, as time goes on. But you never 100% close the door on a relationship you once had. You just don't. I see the road that's curving out southbound. Well, hear those jingle bells john <laughs> i do i do um it's like it's like everybody's de- listening device right now has a, has a chimney and a fireplace and, yeah and you and i are dressed as santa claus yes we're coming down your chimney right now bringing you another christmas present that's right and that's what this is merry christmas everybody happy holidays Man, this happy festivus. This this is a good one because um, you and I had talked about a long time ago. We were like, man, we we, we really want to get somebody who can touch on the topic of like grief and yeah. grieving and, and 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 that sort of thing. And and so originally uh, we were like, yeah, and let's release it around the holidays because like more people are are really like feeling down and depressed and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then as we're researching for this episode, that's actually a common myth. It's not true. <laughs> not not as true as we thought it was. No. Kind of got corrected a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like researching this and that's like one of the first thing that first things that pops up. It's like actually that's a common misconception. Right. I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> right. Well, we're still going to do it anyway. So Yeah, totally still going to do it anyway. And I still think it's appropriate because, you know, for for whatever people, you know, you know, whether it's a misconception or not, um it it ends up being kind of a part of the popular consciousness at least. Yeah, even if it's not like a, a thing in the way we thought it was a thing, yeah, it's still like what people end up kind of thinking. Like, 
Well, and like you get around the holidays and the holidays, you know, predominantly are about, you think of like time with your family, right. with your loved ones and stuff. So making memories. Yeah. And so, and, and I still think, you know, it's something where, you know, if you um, have lost a loved one mm. or if, if your loved ones can't be with you during the holidays for whatever reason, whether they're, they're um, serving in the, in the armed forces and they're, and they're overseas, so they can't be with you in that moment. Mm. Um, you know, they're in harm's way or something, you know, this I think is going to be a really useful episode. Mm -hmm. Um, or if they're low, if your loved one is, is sick, um, to the extent where, um, the person that is, is, you know, there now is not the person that they once were, whether it's Alzheimer's or something along those lines. So, um, this one is, I think one of my favorite episodes we've ever done and you brought this one to us. So tell Tell the people, who is this and, and why is this a special, unique episode? So Pauline Boss, um, this is kind of one of those things where years ago, like this before we even started the podcast, um, I was, I'll never forget where I was. I was on a flight. I was flying, you know, to a destination for work to do, you know, my, my sales gig. <laughs> and I was listening to On Being with Krista Tippett. And uh, there was this author speaker on there talking about grief in a way that I had never heard it talked about before. And it was one of those moments where like, you know, it, if you're out there and you, you're listening to this podcast, chances are you listen to lots of other ones and you probably like to read and you probably like to have conversations. And, and, and if you're like John and I, you have probably uh, forgotten far more than you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, at least that's how I feel about myself all the time. And, but, but then there's certain things that you come across and you may not even have like a deep handle on the material, but it just sticks and you never forget it. And you know, it's important. And when we started this podcast and, you know, like years into it at this point, a couple years into it, we wanted to start to tackle this idea of grief because grief is, is so, uh, it's this big, it's this big thing that happens in life. Like we all experience grief. Um, grief is this thing that we all find very, very difficult to talk about. Like, you're not, you're not just having conversations about grief, grief with people, like, because right. like who wants to do that? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, I'd really like to like talk to you about grief at the bar tonight, John. Like, can we bring it down? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's bring let's it down. About grief. But we need to talk about it. Right. Because it's such a huge part of the human experience. Loss is such a, a huge part of the human experience. And, and germane to this podcast, um, there's a whole nother element involved because, if you're asking new questions or giving air to your doubts, um, you're probably disconnecting from people. You're probably disconnecting from places. You're probably disconnecting from an image of yourself mm. that you've held on to for a really, really long time. And with that, very, very close at hand is this kind of low grade, at least low grade. Maybe it's very acute for some people, but it's at least a low grade kind of feeling of grief. Yep. And so this episode that I was listening to with Krista Tippett had this, this lady, Pauline Boss, who we have on today. And uh, she's a professor of family and social science at the University of Minnesota, uh, past president of the National Council on Family Relations, uh, psychotherapist in private practice. And she's absolutely, she's one of those fresh thinkers that brings something new to the conversation in such a way that it's not too complicated for people to understand. It's one of those things that you could say it to anyone in conversation, some of the, the topics that we talk about on the show today, and people will be like, oh, yeah, yep. yes, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I knew we needed to get her. 
Oh, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. As soon as I, because I, I, I ordered us these books, and I was like, okay. So I, I started diving into this book, and it's one of those concepts where you're like, duh, <laughs> like, like, and it's and it's funny because once you start to differentiate between the type of loss that she talks about, mm. ambiguous loss, and and regular traditional clean cut cut and dry loss, like mm. you know you have a loved one who passes away, mm-hmm. they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fact the fact of the matter is the ambiguous style of loss is the type that we deal with on a far more uh, frequent basis. Oh yeah, and it's the one that we deal with the worst. Yes, um, and so yeah, just I, I don't want to say too much more because I want to get to it and let her speak for herself, obviously. Right. But um, and and obviously we want to um, we'll, we'll uh, decompress afterwards. But right, it's just incredible. It's 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 useful. It's necessary, and I think. Um, this book is hugely helpful because she she gives coping skills and mm. and and some um, some useful advice on how to deal with this and 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 mostly like a lot of it's advice for like for you the person the loved one who is is dealing with this loss but it's also about the community around you and how they can assist you yep in your grieving process which is almost more important than how you handle it individually yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just, I, I think it's one of the most interesting episodes we've done. And I think, um, I hope, my hope is that going into this holiday season, that no matter where the listeners are, mm. if they're dealing with any of these types of, of loss, that this is helpful and useful to them. And they find some sense of hope going into the holiday season and, yeah. and beyond. So, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. This is a really important episode. Yeah. Yep. So without further ado, here we go with Pauline freaking. freaking. Boss. It's a holy picture that I'm watching unfold in the greens and the waters past the tumbling of my wheels. And if I can shift my focus past my own dissatisfaction, perhaps. It All right, will well. Pauline Boss, we John and I are just uh, we're beaming over here. We're just so excited to to have you on the show. It's such an honor to have you here. So uh, welcome, formally welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thank you for being with us tonight. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, well, for for our listeners out there who aren't as familiar with uh, with your work um, and 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 kind of your background, if you could just give a, a brief kind of high level overview of of who you are, what what you do, and uh, kind of how you got into the work that you you find yourself in currently. Uh, well, I've been hanging out until I retired in at the University first of Wisconsin in Madison, and then since 1981 at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Family Social Science. Um, I've always been studying ambiguous loss in families um, under the umbrella of family stress, mm. <clears throat> and it was a concept I got interested in already as a graduate student when I was in Madison. Uh, so it's been uh, a long time that I've been interested in this concept and and uh, studying it. I'm also a family therapist, so I've been doing therapy since the 1970s. And one of my uh, therapy teachers in Madison was um, Carl Whitaker, uh, the pioneer, one of the pioneers in family therapy. Wow. Well, uh, my my family would be pleased to hear this because they're all from uh, from Wisconsin, so. As, as is mine. Go oh, oh Badgers, yes. That's right. That's as, right. Is, as is mine. Go Packers, go Badgers. I was born in <laughs> Wausau, lived in Green Bay. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. 
So, so one of the terms that you that you mentioned there, and and I would love for you to take a moment to to define this for our listeners, uh, as this is a, a the main topic that we're going to be discussing throughout the the podcast here is ambiguous loss. How how what is ambiguous loss, and how does that differ from what we would view as regular grief or loss? Uh, ambiguous loss is simply a loss that remains unclear and without any validation. There is no death certificate. There is no body to bury. Um, And it can be either psychological or physical. A physical ambiguous loss is when the person actually goes missing or is kidnapped or disappears at sea uh, or is somewhere where you don't know where they are. Uh, It could be as catastrophic as the tsunami washing someone away or as common in every day as breaking up with somebody who's no longer with you, but they are somewhere on this earth and um, no longer with you. So that's a physical ambiguous loss. A psychological ambiguous loss is when the mind is missing, such as with the catastrophic illness of Alzheimer's disease or one of the 58 other kinds of dementia that affect people now. Uh, it can also be simply from addiction or autism or um, some other ways that the person is there but not there. Mm. So they are physically present but psychologically absent. Um, I might add that ambiguous loss is the most stressful kind of loss there is because there is no certainty about the outcome. Um, so it differs from death. With death, there's a, an official who comes and uh, uh, performs an autopsy or just an examination. There's a death certificate. So there's an official verification of death. And often there is some ritual um, of comfort that other people recognize and acknowledge that you've had a loss. With ambiguous loss, nobody notices because, one thing, there is no death that has occurred and people don't know how to react to it. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, the evolution of this concept and, and you know, how did, how, did, how did you start to get interested in this and, you know, how did, how did this idea start to emerge? Because I think it's so, such a powerful and helpful idea you know, where did this whole idea come from? Well, it came out of my head. Um, I coined the term in the, in the late 70s. Um, I was a graduate student at Madison, and I was studying theory construction, and, the prof- and I came up with a paper on psychological father absence in an intact family, uh, saying that fathers can be absent even though um, they're physically still in the family. And I was... I was talking about the 1970s when many fathers were working so hard and not at home. It's unlike now. Fathers are much more interactive now. But at that time, um, they weren't. And they would say that the children were mother's business, and why should I be here in therapy, family therapy, regarding the children? So I wrote that fathers can be present but also absent in families. But my professor in theory construction said, Pauline, it's about more than fathers. Go home and think about another term that is more broad. And so I did, and I came up with the term ambiguous loss, meaning that anybody in the family could be psychologically absent. An autistic child is psychologically absent. 
a parent who is on drugs is psychologically absent. Mm. Um, it, it might be um, in organizations. It can happen as well if the leader is psychologically absent. So, so it is a more systemic um, uh, effect than I had originally thought. It's, it is indeed about more than fathers. Wow. So there's, there's a concept that came out when we were, you know, kind of doing our homework here that I, I thought was so powerful that ties into a little bit of what you're saying. It sounds like um, maybe this is kind of, you were making some connections here where the idea came from. Uh, you talk about the paradox of human connections, you know, the, the, pres- the presence of an absence or the absence of a presence and the confusion of those things. Can you talk a little bit about that and, uh, and tease out a little bit about what you mean by that? I think that's so, so good and so powerful. Well, I think in human relationships, rarely are we 100% present or absent for, for uh, the people who care about us. Um, mostly, we're partly here and partly gone. Like, at the moment, uh, I'm not with my family members because I'm on the phone with you. Mm-hmm. So I'm physically present with my husband. We're in the same uh, apartment. But in fact, I'm psychologically preoccupied with with you guys, so I'm not there for him. Um, so I think that's the way human relationships are. Now and then I see somebody who's 100% physically and psychologically present, in a, maybe in a mom-and-pop uh, small uh, business where they're together 24 hours a day, or maybe on a family farm where they were together 24 hours a day. But it's so rare. Mm. Uh, I think the norm is that um, we have a mixture of absence and presence in our relationships, but we don't often think about that. One of the things that to kind of go along with what you're saying that that just struck me is is um, when you talked about psych- being psychologically absent, and I know one of the things that you mentioned in your writing is uh, a whole manner of things that 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 could apply to, and you mentioned computer games and, and video games, and one of the things that I yep. see, at, you know, as <laughs> as technology evolves, is you see you go out to restaurants and you see couples sitting at the same dinner table just staring at their cell phones. And, and, and how yes. ambiguous loss kind of it seems to continue to expand and evolve uh, along with technology. Yes, it, it's changed. It's changed terrifically. Um, you know, um, people have long-term relationships by um, having their Skype picture on the table at a restaurant with them when they are thousands of miles away. Uh, their partner is on, on the table, on the computer. And I'm not saying these are bad. I'm saying these are new. Mm -hmm. The absence and presence paradigm is shifting regarding social media and um, how all that has taken place. In some cases, it has brought people closer. But in other cases, it has separated people. Uh, They're more involved with their uh, devices than they are with the person sitting next to them. So would I be correct in in making the assumption... um to you know, use all this terminology that the more that the presence and the absence become things that are confused, is that where the ambiguity increases? That w- when you're not distinguishing, uh, it's, uh, it's the disjoint uh, between the two. Um, however, sometimes people want that. Um, for example, long distance relationships and so on. 
so it might not be pathological. But when there's um, uh, a disparagement between, let's say, with Alzheimer's disease, with the person is present, but you, they no longer know who you are, that tends to create great pain in the people who experience it. Um, or in kids with an addicted parent, um, the person is there, but, you know, their head is in a bottle and um, they don't recognize the child anymore. That's very, very painful for the child. And that may be worse than um, a long-term, a long-term with this kind of um, uncertain loss, unclear loss, ambiguous loss, is harder on a person than a clear-cut death where they know that the person cannot communicate with them anymore. When the person is there but not there, there's always a little hope that they'll come back. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I see her when I'm sleeping Surrounded by my friends Where the singing and the laughter and the never end. So, one of the the other phrases that you use that there's just so much helpful phraseology. You know, I just I can't uh, encourage our listeners enough to uh, pick up your works, uh, specifically your book Ambiguous Loss and uh, other interviews that you've done. Uh, I, I find this stuff so incredibly helpful. Uh, living in our day and age, where I think this there's so much of this, and we we need to get better at talking about it. One of the concepts the phrases that you use that really struck a chord with me is this uh, phrase, tolerance for the unknown. You say in your book, uh, in order to help others cope with such loss, we must first understand their tolerance for the unknown. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Let me take the other side of it first, and that is we live in a mastery-oriented culture, one that doesn't tolerate uncertainty and the unknown. Yes. Uh, and those of us who go to school or uh, advanced degrees or uh, technical school, we're, we're trained to solve problems. We're trained to fix something. Uh, we are not trained to tolerate um, unanswered questions. And that's what I'm talking about. There are a lot of questions in human relationships that remain unanswered. And... We cannot insist on certainty, on clarity all the time. Mm. Now, I need, to, I need to say a caveat. I want my banker to know that 2 plus 2 is 4 all the time. <laughs> I, I want some certainty in areas of life for yeah. the most part. But now and then with illness or with um, human relationships that um, are not perfect, not 100% together all the time, uh, we need to increase our tolerance for unanswered questions, for not knowing where this person is. Um, I've even talked with some clients who um, the, the parent that was at home called the parent who was at work uh, every hour at work, which is disturbing. Um, you need to have some trust in the ambiguity of not knowing where the other person is sometimes. Mm. But... It, Sometimes it gets overwhelming, like when soldiers are missing in action, when someone is lost at sea. In Japan, where I've been working with the families who lost loved ones that were washed away in the tsunami, um, and after 9-11 in New York, and on and on, um, terrorists today have 
discovered that kidnapping or disappearing a family member hurts the family longer than killing that family member. So that kidnapping and disappearance is now a major tool of terrorists around the world. Those are terrible things. But in a society such as ours, we need to have more tolerance for the families who are suffering from these kinds of losses. Um, may I give you the example of immigrants and refugees who come here? Um, and in fact, that may be where I came up with the idea. My father was an immigrant from Switzerland mm. um, in 1929. And life was not good here then, so he couldn't get back. So he immigrated by, by default. He didn't intend to stay here. And all of his life, he pined for the people left behind, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, the mountains of Switzerland, and on and on. Um, I've seen this in immigrants today. By the way, my grandmother from Switzerland, my maternal grandmother, wouldn't learn English because she said she'd given up the mountains and, and her homeland and her mother. How many do we see today, older women especially, who won't learn English? I have great empathy for them. Mm. Their, their kids will learn English. <clears throat> they don't need to. <clears throat> the elders don't need to. Mm. So, so I may have wandered off the topic. Not um, at all. Get me back on it. No, that's perfect. Um, so one of the things, one of the important things uh, I, I found in your book is, <clears throat> excuse me, is the, the idea that uh, a lot of people who are on the, the, the other end of you know, a missing person or, or um, uh, someone who's dealing with like Alzheimer's, you know, is, is suffering intensely. And yet, as you say in the book, uh, it's not something that society or their community necessarily recognizes. So how do we go about uh, first recognizing and then helping that person go through the process of, of grieving? I think the churches can be very helpful here, and the communities and, and uh, uh, any other group that deals with loss and grief have got to include ambiguous loss in their thinking. Um, because, and some people call it non-finite loss, which is related to that, because people need help with it. They quietly struggle. Caregivers in every country, and in ours as well, are, are often 24-7 isolated to their house because of needing to be there all the time. Someone in the community needs to relieve them. How many I've heard who say, I'd love to go to church, but I can't leave him. <laughs> and, and then um, I asked one pastor of a congregation, can't you set up a plan whereby somebody would go to their house and sit so this person could come? And the pastor said, we can't do it because of insurance issues. And I thought, oh, my God. Um, so the community needs to get involved. Uh, so that people with loved ones who are missing, either in mind or body, are not left to suffer by themselves. They need recognition. And what do we say to them? All we say is, I'm sorry. Mm. That's the best thing to say. Um, we say so many things to people at a funeral that are wrong. Uh, I think with ambiguous loss and with a clear-cut death, 
the best thing to say is, I'm sorry. Mm. That's so good. Um, one of the concepts that um, I heard you talk about on your interview with Krista Tippett, which I thought was just a, a splendid interview, um, and this concept just stuck with me like, oh my gosh, so much of what you're saying is, is making me realize how addicted I am to certainty and to always having firm footing and knowing you know, what the future is going to hold next and things like that. And your concept uh, that you call the myth of closure or that you guys discussed, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I was just fascinated by this. I mean, I just realized in that instant how often um, I believe that I am entitled to closure. And that we try, I try to convince others that they're entitled to closure, whether I say it that way or not. Um, I operated for quite some time as a pastor and did a lot of counseling. And I realized uh, listening to that episode was so helpful for me because I can tell you I turned on a dime and started to promise less <laughs> and try to get... Really? People. Yeah. And I would love to talk really? with you. Yeah. I would love to talk with you a little bit about that. What when When we... Well, it will be my next book. I'm writing the proposal now, The Myth of Closure. Uh, It really bugs me when I hear people on uh, TV and the media say, well, now they've found the dead body. The family has closure. No, they don't. No. Uh, We live with grief. We don't get over it, nor do we need to. Closure is a perfectly good word in real estate when you close a deal, or in the business community, when you close the deal, uh, what people mean when they say now they find the body, they have closure. They don't mean closure. They mean they now have the certainty that he is dead. Yes. Um, And that, so they misuse the term closure, which means close the door. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's, that's misleading to people. It's, I think it's harmful to people, it's cruel to people to let them think there is such a thing as closure. We live with suffering, and indeed it gets less and probably farther and farther apart, what they call oscillation now in the research, as time goes on. But you never 100% close the door on a relationship you once had. You just don't. No. No, I... I found that one of the main things I realized I was doing to people was encouraging them in like, this is my own language, but like almost in a lust for omniscience in situations that, that if you can understand it all and if you can find more reasons and if you can get yourself to process things better, that this is going to afford you some kind of bedrock to set, you know, some kind of firm ground that is going to make you feel like you can now take a step forward. And I feel like, like so bad about taking people down that direction for so long. Because when I heard you start to talk about this idea, the myth of closure, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah, what right do I have? (laughs) Or what right do any of us have to think we're ever going to understand this? And that's why a lot of people from cultures other than our own don't believe in therapy. Um, It's because we, we infuse on them, um, the beliefs that we have. And I think the yearning for closure grows out of our yearning for mastery, of being in charge, of finding an answer, of getting over the pain. There's something wrong with you if you don't get over the pain. Rather, I take a more Eastern view where you, you learn to live with the pain, manage it perhaps. You don't get over it. Uh, and indeed, what you were saying 
it was correct that you need to find some meaning in your loss, uh, even in your ambiguous loss, um, which may mean you'll work for the Center for Missing Children if you have a missing child uh, or some other thing, or you work for a society on autism if your child has autism. But for the most part, um, the, thing, the, the five steps of grief, such as Kubler-Ross, she never meant that for the family. She meant that for the dying person. Mm. And there is an end point to death when the heart stops breathing, but there is not an end point to grief for someone you cared about. I still use my mother's recipes at every holiday. Mm. Uh, I use my grandmother's sugar bowl on the table for holiday dinners. I sing some of the songs to my um, grandchildren that uh, were songs that I heard sung to me or remembered from that. We don't get over this. Uh, my, my son wears his grandfather's hunting jacket in Colorado. Um, these things are not unusual. And so I think it's the myth that we find closure. I think we want it. We never find it. Mm. And it's okay. And here is the paradox again. The more you search for closure, the more trouble you will have living peacefully with your loss. Sin in my shoes, a light from the moon. All that I choose is one more moment to spend here with you. <laughs> Either way, oh, it'll be I'll a quote on the podcast. I'll have to from the transcript. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we'll, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, you need to put that in the book. Yeah. That, was a, that was a mic drop quote, Pauline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh-huh. one of the things I would love for you to talk about um, that you talk about in the book in, in terms of ways to kind of help people uh, come to terms with, with ambiguous loss is, is the importance of community. That This is a theme that... I. I sense that comes up again and almost in the way that I interpreted it was almost a return to um, uh, living through, through your tribe and, and, and working yeah. through things together. And you mentioned that there's a need for new rituals uh, for each small loss that, that occurs along the way. I wondered if you could kind of talk about that and unpack that a little bit. What do you, what do you necessarily mean by, by rich, new rituals? Well, overall, we need new rituals for ambiguous loss, and some of them are on a community level, such as uh, the, the villages that were hit with tsunami, almost all the villages, villagers washed away, um, and so on uh, in Japan. But we have those here, too, with mudslides and so on, um, 9-11. There we need community uh, memorials. Um, perhaps not as fancy as the one in New York City, which is awesome, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, or the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is still uh, awesome to me. Um, what that does for family members is it says that we're not alone. The community is with us. The community recognizes that what we have lost somebody. Uh, that's very important. But it's also important on a smaller level 
And by the way, these memorials, community-wide, don't have to be expensive. I encourage the villages in Japan to just have the children make something, gather together some stones or some something that ha- has um, meaning to that village. The important thing, though, is that each, whatever it is, has the name, the names of the missing people on it. It's the names you want. Mm. And that's where people go instead of having a grave to go to. And to know that other people recognize the loss. Now, let's go to a smaller version. Um, and that, let's take the example of Alzheimer's disease or some sort of dementia, mm-hmm. where the person is gradually losing something. At first, a little bit of their memory and decision making. Later on, they may lose their. Um, uh, ability to remember you later on, maybe incontinence, and later on, maybe not even being able to swallow. Uh, at each one of these, I encourage the family members to recognize the loss, and and with something small, it might just be to light a candle with each other, and saying we we can't travel anymore together. That's gone. Or a woman in California told me she makes a, a paper, um, what are the Japanese uh, cuttings uh, with the scissors like birds? Oh, like uh, the uh, paper cranes? The paper cranes. She sends a paper crane out into the ocean each time her husband lost another thing. And, of course, that's a plateau that goes down and down and down. Mm. And so I encourage grieving along the way. And having one of, at least one other person with you when you do that. The ritual should not be done alone. It should have at least one witness mm. to comfort you uh, while you do it. So I do encourage people with dementia in the family to know that it's normal to be grieving along the way. It's not abnormal. It's not um, disloyal to be grieving before death has occurred. Mm. I love that you brought that up because I actually had that that section um, in my notes. Uh, just the uniqueness of of uh, witnessing somebody going through something like Alzheimer's, and uh, mm-hmm. the point that you brought up that I wouldn't have even uh, wouldn't have even occurred to me is the fact that the caregiver in particular is is almost like grieving a thousand deaths, small deaths, over and over and over again. It's not just one, yeah, you know. I think they would agree with you. Yes, I've worked with so many. They often say that. But but what has... Uh, and by the way, caregivers die at a rate 66% higher than their same age group. So that's the current push to make life better for caregivers so that they don't die before the person they're taking care of. Um, one of their major stressors uh, has been um, isolation and nobody sharing this ongoing grief with them. That's why the rest of us need to go visit our neighbor who may be a caregiver. Our churches need to be more cognizant of what's going on with their caregivers and their isolation. Mm. The whole community needs, if we aren't caregiving ourselves, which many of us are, we need to uh, pay attention to the others and not have them socially isolated. Do you think, this is just 
off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm just thinking of, of why we like to, uh, not like to, but why oftentimes we avoid, or these, these caregivers get isolated, or these people that have suffered loss get isolated. And is it because at the end of the day, we all know that that loss that they suffered is something that we could suffer, and, and that's difficult for us to, to know what to do with. It's, we, you know, we like our illusions. We like, we like our Right. Our dreams and the fact that nothing bad's going to ever happen to us and we're going to die, you know, like in the movie The Notebook, holding the hand of our husband <laughs> or wife yeah. at a ripe old age yeah. and everything's going to be great. Holding hands in the same bed together. Yeah. 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 Um, well, it's the randomness we don't like. Right. Um, it's the randomness. If it could happen to them, it could happen to me. Right. Um, you know, and of course, I love that book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's mm. Kushner's book is still number one on the list for me yep. uh, in helping families. Bad things do happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. So there you go. Um, we need a tolerance for ambiguity. And when I, over the years, as I've given uh, training talks on this, um, I was in New York once at the Jewish Community Center, and there were several theologians there, and one came up to me and said, when I say tolerance for ambiguity, he said, that's faith. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is, isn't it? Um, to put a little bit of a, you know, not trying to put a positive spin on it, but there you do, uh, towards the end of your book, um, hit what I think was, again, just something that you don't think about, but it was so true, it rang so true, because this is so difficult to talk about and it's so difficult to experience but you say that ambiguous loss can, in spite of the high stress, produce some good in the confusion and lack of rigidity lie opportunities for creativity and new ways of being that have some purpose. That's a very important piece. Uh-huh. Yeah. New yeah. ways of being. In other words, for example, perfectionism is not the goal. Perfection, perfectionism is not what we should strive for. And, and a caveat, you know, my background is Swiss, uh, Swiss-American, and so you know I got a heavy dose of it. Mm. Um, and um, they do make wonderful watches and precision instruments in Switzerland. I'm glad of that. Mm -hmm. But in human relationships, perfectionism does not work. It is not the thing we should strive for. Instead, we should strive for the tolerance for ambiguity because there always is ambiguity in a human relationship, ambiguity of absence and presence. Are they here for me or are they not? You never know 100%. You have faith. You have trust. Uh, and, and we need a little bit more um, faith in unanswered questions. And again, I want most of my questions answered. But there are some that are not answered. Um, you, don't, you have people who are ill, they're suffering. With terminal illness, you know they're going to die, but you don't know when. And so this is in order to be with that person, in order to be the strongest human being you yourself can be, we have to be present for them, even though we don't know what's going on. So... One of the things that I think is interesting uh, that you talk about in, in terms of how to help people manage um, or, or kind of come to terms with their, their grieving process is you're careful to give guidelines and not prescriptions for resiliency, I not do. normalcy. Why, why is that? Why is that an important distinction? 
Well, I think it's, it would be a lot of hubris on my part if I gave prescriptions. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not my way. And if I'm talking about tolerance for ambiguity, and then I outline some specific prescriptions, that, that would make me a hypocrite. Mm. <clears throat> yes, I do give guidelines. And I say guidelines on purpose, and they shouldn't be in linear fashion either. They can be used back and forth, or you can use some and not the others. Let me just list them. The first one is finding meaning, and the second is adjusting mastery. The third is reconstructing your identity, which changes when you have ambiguous loss. The next one is normalizing ambivalence, because ambivalence always follows ambiguity. Mm. And revising attachment, because you have to revise how you're attached to a person who is missing. And then finally, discovering new hope. You have to hope for something new and different, because you can't have it the way you wanted it. So part of this is giving up our own need, our own ego for wanting things our way. It's, with certain things, it just doesn't happen, um, like illness and like disappearance and like breaking up and so on. Um, these guidelines are, are used now um, worldwide in all different cultures, and we're finding that the guidelines and the theory of ambiguous loss holds up uh, in Eastern as well as Western cultures. Wow. Uh, there was one change. You may have caught it as I was reading the six guidelines. Instead of tempering mastery, I titled that, by the way, after 9-11, thinking of New Yorkers who were very can-do people. But when this was tested in East Timor and, and um small villages by the International Red Cross uh, that were patriarchal villages and women's husbands were kidnapped, disappeared. They found that the women had no power. They were neither wife nor widow. And so they had to increase their mastery, not temper it, not tamp it down. So I have changed that word to adjusting mastery. That's the one correction thus far. And then adding new hope, making sure people know I meant new hope uh, for the last one, not, find, not just hoping that things will go back to the way they were, because they don't. Uh, so you have to find something new to hope for. Mm. To orient your direction. Yep. You have, to, you have to see yourself in a new way. You know, am I still a wife if my husband has... Alzheimer's disease and doesn't know me anymore. Um, I, I remember this with my mother. Uh, I was taking care of my mother, and, um, and so I needed to take care of her, but every now and then she would look at me and say, I'm still your mother. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, we had a sense of humor about it, and we could laugh. But it was, um, my role was unclear, ambiguous at the time because uh, ordinarily she was my mother, I was her daughter. She took care of me, but now I was taking care of her and things were topsy-turvy. Uh, so your identity changes there too. You become both a daughter and a parent to your parent mm. in cases like that. So that's... that's like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was saying I 
spoken about each of these guidelines. Oh, I wanted to say this one thing. So, the, so they're definitely guidelines. I'm happy I said guidelines so that people from different cultures uh, around the world can plug in their ambiguous losses, and that seems to be working now. Mm. Uh, in other words, the loose guidelines are better than a prescription because the minute we, and I'm a white person with a European background, in a Western culture, the minute we give a prescription, it, it, it's arrogant. It mm. doesn't fit the rest of the world. Yeah, we love doing it, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. love yeah. doing it. Yep, we have been doing it. We might be a little bit arrogant, I think. I learn a great deal from the Native Americans here in Duluth, Minnesota, and and also in Montreal and so on, uh, about not doing that. Mm. Um, and so it takes a little bit of a shift in your thinking as to, to stay with a looser model that is more inclusive and more general uh, rather than getting specific. So I'm very happy not to get specific. Mm. So much here. This is such a, such a fun conversation. Uh, I want to take a, a little bit of a pivot turn here. One of the things that I noticed uh, in reading your works and listening to your interviews and hearing you talk about this, even the subject we were just talking about, all the different changes that need to happen and uh, how our mastery needs to be adjusted and things like that because there's so many different things going on, uh, identity shifts and, and things of that layer. You know, yep. the, the ambiguity itself is multi-layered. You know, there's, That's right. There's a lot to it. It's not just one thing. It's not like, oh, I'm just trying to get used to this person not being here and figuring out what that means. There's, there's a, it's like a nerve center, and it goes uh -huh. off to a whole bunch of different things. One of the things that we're interested in on this podcast is, you know, while your work deals a lot with the death or disappearance of a loved one specifically, uh, we would also like to just talk a little bit about how that plays into our relationship with the sacred or the divine or God. Many of us because of the loss or disappearance of a loved one or some other trauma experience, also what seems to be the loss or disappearance of our faith or our God or things like that. And I would mm. love, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. That's interesting. I, I heard from families about that after 9-11. When people in the family or sometimes um, professionals would say to them, it was God's will that your loved one was in the building at the time and now they've disappeared in the ground zero. Mm. What a terrible thing to say to people because uh, yeah. what happened was many of them said to, uh, I heard them say, actually, if it's God's will, then I'm done with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so there has to be another way to say it. Uh, and um, I, I, I know there are other ways to say it, but I know a lot of people say it that way. And maybe in, I'm not a theologian, so uh, I may be saying this wrong. But psychologically, it isn't helpful to people to say it that way. Mm -mm. Uh, it may turn them, and especially the young people, the adolescents and the kids, immediately would say, well, then I don't like God. Mm -hmm. So I look in her eyes. Tell her all that I know what to say 
so much of what we've uh, found on this show is that there's this upheaval right now. There's a lot, and you know, it happens from time to time. All throughout history, there's people have documented this, but uh, John and I feel like we're participating now in a conversation where we're, we're reestablishing some of the things, and, and so much of your language applies to what we've talked about so much on the podcast. Even the whole idea of adjusting our mastery, so much of what we experience in this in this realm where people are saying, you know, I used to relate to the divine or to my faith community in this way, and now that's not there anymore. For whatever reason, it could be because of something uh, a little bit more acute, like an actual trauma, like 9-11, or, you know, a death in the family, or, you know, some ambiguous loss that then, you know, becomes that nerve center that eventually gets you to ambiguity with the divine or with God. But, that language of mastery, we find that so many of us want so desperately to have our concepts of God completely figured out. And when something happens that upsets that or disturbs it, you know, we're, we're sent, right. we're sent, re- right. we're sent reeling. And then we have to, I just think yeah. we have to take a looser grip. It, it, sometimes it feels to me like, um, if it doesn't go our way, then we drop out. Yeah. Um, you know, if the congregation hires the wrong minister, we drop out. Um, if if it doesn't go our way, if the minister isn't doing it the way we think he or she should do it, we drop out. Well, those are mastery-oriented um, reactions, I think. Um, one needs to have take a looser grip, be a little more flexible about tolerating differences, tolerating things that change over time. I mean, my gosh... Uh, how things have changed over time regarding diversity and so on. Mm. And uh, if we just take a closer look at it, uh, if we can stand what we don't know about for a little bit longer, we can find something exciting in it. Mm. Uh, we, we get stronger because of it. It's, it's, again, a paradox. The more you can tolerate the ambiguity, um, the stronger you are. Mm. I would just love to follow this line of thought um, because like, like Adam said, I, I feel like so much of what you're saying um, I, I really identify with um, from, from my particular perspective. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating was where you talk about uh, the importance of changing or tweaking rituals versus canceling them. And the first thing I thought of was uh, we have a lot of listeners who reach out to us who say, you know, like I've been, I've been hurt by the church and I just can't go to church anymore or whatever the case may be. And the first piece of advice we always give them is community is so important. So maybe, maybe instead of that ritual going to a church right now, maybe you just meet with, with friends at a coffee shop, but you maintain that sense Absolutely. of community and support. It's community. You know, we're, we're an, we're becoming an isolated society and that scares me. Yes. Um, you know, we can Twitter and we can do all these other things, but really we're home alone doing this. Mm, right. And community is the way for people to recognize that we have commonalities and differences that we can help each other. If we don't, if we don't get more into community, the tribe again, the human race is in danger. Mm. Um, you know, it was the tribal system that allowed it to, to survive and evolve. Um, and we're, we may be evolving in the wrong direction now. It's possible. Agreed. Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Um, the, one of the things, again, another. I, I see. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please. 
I see a lot of community here uh, in in the Midwest, of course, but then people may move around less here, so yeah. I don't know how it is on the coast. But um, we can't keep up with all there is to do with the community. Of course, there are the sports sports fans, but there's music here, there's theater here, uh, there are uh, uh, community organizations to help uh, the children in immigrant communities and so on. There's there's just stuff all over here in um, in any kind of field that you're interested in. So uh, there's really no one could go without. Um, and I just love that about the Twin Cities. I think they're very good at that. Mm, that's great. Yeah, we, John and I feel the same way about Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, maybe a Midwestern thing yeah. uh, more than the coast, primarily because... Uh, you know, there are families that don't move around that much. And uh, once, once professionals come, they seem to stay. And uh, that, that allows community. Oh, we have lots of bicycle communities here, too. So mm. there's all that. So, yes, community is essential. Yes. And um, if, you can't, if, if somebody turns on their church, you know, they could look for another one, or they could, as you say, go to a coffee shop and be with other people, get to know somebody, get to help somebody. For God's sakes, there are people who need help. Yes. Yeah, that's so good. Um, another, another word that I just scribbled down as we were talking through all this, and it's something that I, I had realized multiple times uh, looking at your work, and it's another commonality between what you do, mainly with relationships and families, and what John and I witness a lot talking to people uh, in and around this podcast project. And it's this idea of uh, mystery and how, you know, uh-huh. as, as humans, uh, we're very ill-equipped to deal with the mystery in relationships. You mentioned that. And one of the things that John and I have noticed is uh, most of what people get um, upset or disturbed at is when, you know, they wake up to find God as the great other. You know, the, you know this, this concept that they can't control and, and, and they're very uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, it might not be exactly as they thought it was, and it creates this upheaval um, in their faith. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about um, how you see, a, you know, a, a comfort with mystery as being something that's helpful in, in relationships, and, and possibly then, then we could extrapolate that over to faith. Oh, I th- I just think we all need to be more comfortable with mystery. Um, and I read somewhere, uh, somebody in Tibet said it's ego wanting its own way. If you think we're going to have no suffering in life, mm. uh, things don't just things will go our way. Hopefully, most of the time, but it's rare that they will go our way all the time. And so there will be mysteries in our life, uh, and God may be one of them. Um, religion may be one of them. Uh, there may be others as well. And I, I would just say, make your peace with it. Um, we need a higher tolerance for ambiguity in this culture, particularly. Um, other cultures have more of it than we do. Uh, I can say that. And it's probably because, you know, we cleared the plains and we straightened the rivers. Mm. We put a man on the moon. All good things. But we need to know that we also have to increase our tolerance for the mystery. Um, sometimes there are surprises in a mystery, 
yeah, you don't get your own way, but maybe you learn something new. And what I've heard mostly from the people I've done therapy with over 40 years and worked with is that they feel stronger for being able to tolerate the mystery. They feel as if they've grown deeper, and I agree. I think it is a sign of mental health to be able to tolerate mystery, uh, to want things to be perfect all the time, to have answers all the time, is a lesser level of maturity psychologically. Mm. Oh, preach it, Pauline. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> no, so, so much so, of this. So we all have to try, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, so many things come to mind when you start saying those things. You know, we, we have been trying to introduce so many people to people like Father Richard Rohr and the contemplative mind. And, you know, mm-hmm. at the end That's of your... That's what it is, probably. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's the contemplative mind, yeah. and, uh, which yeah. is right in the stream uh, that we need it to be in as far as, you know, uh, our relationship to the divine and community and all those kinds of things. It's everything we're talking about. Right at the end of your book, you, you drop so many things from referencing um, poets like uh, Keats and his negative capability. Yes. To Al- uh-huh. oh, that quote from Alice Walker, expect nothing and live frugally on surprise. To, uh-huh. to uh, the phrase that you say, you say ambigu- ambiguity does not have to devastate. I'm wondering. Does not. No, it doesn't. It does not. So this is so important. Uh, if you could just give us some guidelines, not prescription, but guidelines. Um, my last question, and then I think John has one more. How can we start to foster uh, that comfort with ambiguous loss day to day? How can we start to be more comfortable with mystery? What does that mean? Well, the psychiatrist I studied with at Wisconsin, Whitaker, um, after he died, the grandchildren were speaking at his funeral, and they said the favorite thing their the grandfather did was if he would invite them one by one, one at a time, into the car, and he would say, let's go get lost. Um, I have tried that with my grandchildren, and now today my husband and I still do it on a Sunday. We'll just get in the car and say, let's go and get lost. Uh, it's a wonderful adventure. Uh, no map. Um, you need a full gas tank. Um, but you meander. And also, can your organization have a meeting without an agenda? Can you go somewhere just to uh, wander on a path? You don't quite know where it's going. So these are exercises that I think we all, who are mastery-oriented, have to do. Can you take a trail you've never taken before? Can you go down the rapids? Uh, where you don't have control of the water all the time. There are, oh, and here's one I think, and it may be why fishermen are quite mellow people. I think going fishing is an exercise in increasing your tolerance for ambiguity. Wow. You never know if you're going to catch a fish or not. And, you know, true fishermen go fishing anyhow. They seem to love it. And I, so I'm... I'm um, I'm putting them on a pedestal for having a high tolerance for ambiguity. So we have to practice it is what I'm saying. Yes. Uh, consciously. We have to be mindful of shifting from being so problem-oriented, um, answer-oriented, to having a uh, tolerance for unanswered questions and the mystery of it all. Man, when, when I hear you say that, when I, when I hear you ask that question, you know, can, can you let go a little? I keep hearing... Can you live life? Yes. Can you li- can yeah, you really yeah. live? Some some people can't let go. 
they want to know certainty about everything that's going to happen. And, you know, you can't always give it. So uh, before we quit, I wanted to um, tell you the name of, uh, you mentioned Ambiguous Loss, which was the first book I wrote on this topic, and mm-hmm. it certainly is the bestseller. Um, but if people want to go um, into what do you do about it, they may like the Maya Norton book, Lost Trauma and Resilience. Mm. Um, it's a therapeutic work with ambiguous loss, and non-therapists read it, too. Oh, great. Um, they say it's accessible enough. And then if there's somebody who is a caregiver, they might like loving someone who has dementia, okay. which I wrote for families themselves. That's perfect. Fantastic. Well, I just, I, we have one more question for you before we let you go. Okay. Um, and and okay. I, I think this, this would be a perfect way to, for us to end our time together. Um, we have a lot of listeners who, who tune in to listen to our podcast for whatever unknown reason. Uh, we just feel fortunate, but they come from a, a multitude of different backgrounds, uh, ethnicities, uh, even religions. Like we're, we're very proud uh-huh. of the fact that we have a very diverse group of people. And, and I think that a lot of people, I think pretty much anybody listening to our podcast can identify with, with one of the types of ambiguous loss that you name in your book. I mean, you talk about loss of a job, Mm-hmm. Loss of a friendship, a home, um, you know, especially for people who have who have suffered through these hurricanes we've had having lately, and of course, at the time of this recording, the wildfire fly, fires, excuse me, out in uh, California, yeah. um, you know, addiction, divorce, sense of safety, yeah. um, and a lot of people, of course, who listen to our show, um, the loss of of uh, their sense of religious upbringing or maybe their inherited idea of God. Um, I wonder uh-huh. if you, if you could just leave um, our listeners with maybe some words of hope word of hope for all of these people? Yeah. <laughs> Small task. Well, yeah. You know, I'm struggling too. Um, I would not, uh, I, I don't want to have a hierarchy with the people who are listening to this podcast. Mm. I want to say we're all in this together. Amen. Yes. Uh, and so the struggle, I would say just start the struggle, just go on the start the journey and go on it. Uh, and you will find that even if you've lost something so dear to your heart, uh, while you will grieve, and you should, know that you don't have to get over the sadness about it, but at the same time, you need to move forward with your life in a different way without that thing that you've lost. Uh, and it's possible to do that. Um, it takes a little, um, how can I say, trust in the unknown to do that. Um, my mother was a Calvinist, of course, um, most people in Switzerland, um, many people in Switzerland are, and so she always said, um, you know, you need to, you need to uh, get the work done. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, God helps those who help themselves. So I was trained to work hard, and then, of course, the church I belong to is the United Church of Christ, which is a very liberal um, church um, uh, in its interpretation of things, but it has a high uh, emphasis on do the work, social social uh, involvement, uh, which again fits with my mother's view. Mm. So I think you just have to start start the work, just do it, mm. just do it. I guess that's Nike, isn't it? <laughs> no, I love that so much. Oh, <laughs> uh, you knocked it out of the park just now. I just want you to know that. <laughs> 
Okay. Easy well, question, but you. You, you, you mastered that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Pauline, this has been such a joy. This could only be better if we were all sitting down in some cozy little nook drinking coffee or tea or something. I would like that. I would like that. Perhaps another time if yeah. I get to Columbus or if you get to Minneapolis. Oh, Absolutely. Well, we'll totally do that. Before we let you go, um, obviously you have a couple books out um, that that we can't recommend highly enough. We thoroughly enjoyed, uh, you know, a, a lot of your writing. I found even more online. And uh, uh, where can people go to find your works, and how can they stay on top of what you're up to? Oh, the website would be the best place: www.ambiguousloss.com. Mm. Perfect. Done. Well, thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us this evening, and uh, we would love to have you back when you get done with that new book. Um, I, I think this is such thank an you. applicable uh, subject matter for, for everyone, so oh, thank this, you for the work you're doing. This, your work is so incredibly important in this day and age, and I just uh, we're so honored to have you with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and uh, greetings to all of your readers and listeners. Uh, you're doing a good thing here. Thank Good you. Thing. Thank you so much, All Pauline. Right. Well, take care. Right. Grace and peace to you. My father's words rang through the door. Son, I don't think Jesus is in business of healing. Maybe he is occupied with other people's wars or his Dude, there's moments in life that there's moments in life that we finish recording or you know or in any part of life and you just go oh I was just with something I was with a conversation that was really special. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting because like looking back and I and this has become now a tradition for me. Um, not that we've been doing this this long, but like last year I sat down at the end of the year mm-hmm. and I thought, all right, I'm going to make a spreadsheet of all the guests that we had. <laughs> I know. I love it. It's so weird. Me and spreadsheets. I love your spreadsheets. <laughs> so I sat down and I made the spreadsheet because I really wanted to see in writing. I'm like, okay, so who did we have on? You know, is there something I could do better in terms of like curating next year or like, mapping out how we release and when we release and that sort of thing, just, you know, for, for my own edification. Um, but mostly I wanted to sit down and see, all right, like what types of guests do we have on and really, cause, cause you and I in the grind of it, it's very easy to forget like, mm. all right, like who we've had on. Cause oh, we're, yeah. cause as soon as we post one, we're immediately like gearing up for the next week. Yep. And so it was, um, mind boggling just to sit down and, and look at this list. Um, but the episodes I think that stuck out to me uh, were not just the ones where we're like having our minds blown by some like really deep philosophical or theological idea, but the ones where there are these very meaningful conversations or stories that we had, mm. um, whether it was like Glennon Doyle or Brennan Strong or Brennan Strong, yeah, like even Jason Dunlap, like way back, yeah, yeah, back in the the, the first uh, handful of episodes, like just these really real. Uh, poignant stories that I think people identify with and that are useful, um, you know, and and this is one of those where it wasn't necessarily Pauline going through this, but it's it's something that is so easily recognizable within mm. society, within our own relationships, with our own friendships. I guarantee you, there are 
a ton of people listening right now who have either dealt with a family member who dealt, uh, had uh, Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia or had a loved one who was a prisoner of war or you know was a absentee father child of divorce yeah, yeah. any of these things yeah it's uh, a real part of uh, culture it's a real part of life yeah it's a very real part of life and and i think one of the most brilliant things that people can give us as as thinkers and authors and yeah. teachers is language to help us put words to the reality we know we're experiencing, but we almost feel estranged in another way because we don't even have words to process it yeah. with. We don't know how to name it. And when you can start to name the mystery of reality in a new way, you give people enormous um, courage, yeah. I think, to, to deal with what is and loss, and especially the ambiguity of loss and grief is a really huge part of being human. It's a part of the human experience. Yeah, and yet and yet it's one of those things where I know we talk about shame a lot. Yeah, on this podcast in in like the stigma of shame. Oh, and, that's and a word it, we don't use enough actually. Yeah, really. Stigma. There's so, yeah. Oh. Well, and, and it's funny because for me it ties back into because we we did a um a special episode on depression mm-hmm. way back, and I'm sure it's one we'll revisit in the future. But yep. there's but there's a tie-in with that. Um, in the book, they talk about the fact that the the uh, individual who's dealing with a loved one who is um you know for example going through uh, Alzheimer's right, and they're dealing with that loss, oftentimes will will enter into a depression that sort of thing. So there there's this tie-in, but there's also um a commonality there where there's a stigma with it, where she talks about in the book where people who are going through um, the grieving process mm. that is not so cut and dry where it's a gradual, I think I talked about in the, um, the podcast, it's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts right? where it's over and over and mm. over again, where people are just like, just expect you to get over it and move on. Yeah. And that's not the way it works. Not even by a long shot. And that should not be our expectation. No, for for people around us in society, and and so, um, so I'm just curious. But what was because I know I know uh, off the top of my head, I know a couple of the moments that for you and I were pretty similar. Were minds blown? But what were some of the moments for you that really just kind of like kind of threw you for a loop? You know, so so many. So to start with, like a hundred thousand foot view, listening to her work and and to her talk about her work. Um, I think is so important, especially for this space that you and I have created, because loss and grief are, are so part and parcel to what's going on. If you're, if you're listening to a podcast like this and you find yourself um, at odds with people in your life, um, a lot of times one of the things that I think we, we don't necessarily forget, but we also don't talk about it a lot, is deconstruction is often sparked by tragedy. Yep. Right? Or, or trauma or loss of some kind. Um, unmet expectation. Um, you know, somebody pieces out, a divorce, um, a death, some kind of tragedy. Anyway, so like this is so part of the human experience and, and it is ambiguous. And I, I love anyone, and I think we've had a lot of these kinds of people on the show that are giving credibility to the fact that there's so much of the human experience that we cannot understand. So ambiguity is closely related to mystery for me. And I know we talked about that on the episode, you know, and that we need, this drives, you know, further into the point that 
to answer the question, uh, tolerance for the unknown and starting to actually give people the feeling that like, wait a second, like if, if I'm not feeling like I'm processing this well, that's normal, right? That's actually the deal, you know, like how much, so, you know, we kind of posed that against in, in the episode when we talked about like how, you know, we have this, um, need for mastery in life, especially in Western cultures. Like we want to master life. We want to have this mastery of it. And we don't have a good tolerance for the unknown. When she was like, even talking about like creating tolerance for the unknown with your kids by just like, let's get in the car and get lost. Yeah. I love that part. You know, let's just yeah. get lost. Like that, that, that's okay. Yeah. Like to be lost is okay. To wander yeah. is okay. To not know when it's going to end or when it's going to get to the next place is okay. Yeah. And we need to develop this like muscle memory for, for that. I think that is huge Yeah, for so many areas of life, but specific to our podcast, obviously it has some application. Yeah. I, oh man, I, I totally forgot about that part. Um, the, the thing that st- stuck out to me that I thought was super poignant was the part where um, she calls, excuse my French, but complete bullshit on this idea of closure. Oh, dude. well, that's what got me. Yeah. Like initially it's like, and, and I think the example she gives is she's like, you know, there's, there are parents whose, whose child uh, goes missing and they never find, you know, they f- never find the child, never find the body. And then, you know, the, the newscasters are like, well, they, they located the body. Now the family can have closure. It's like, no, no, that, that wound never heals. It doesn't heal. Like your, your life is changed forever. Yep. You just learn how, how to, you, you just learn how to live in that new life. Yeah. From then forward. Absolutely. But that it, things never, there is no closure. That's, that no. does not exist. No, it doesn't. And it's damaging to allow that assumption yeah. to remain alive in our society because it's, it's oppressive to the people that are going through ambiguous loss. It's right. oppressive. And I love that she calls it, she almost just, uh, it's almost like she's trash talking it. Like, you know, it's, yeah. the, it's the myth of closure. It's like, come on. It's like, no, there is no such thing. Like whoever came up with the idea that there would be this thing called closure after, you know, the dying of a relationship, like, no, all you can ever do is finally get to a place where you have enough strength and enough people around you to just take another new step. Yeah. To, to, it's, it, it's good enough mm-hmm. to take another step. Yeah. And that that should be celebrated. Yeah. And that should be a victory. And that all of this comes back to like one of my favorite quotes. And I, nobody knows exactly who, who said it. Um, it was a, a lot of times attributed to some Scottish minister named uh, uh, McEwen. Um, other people have said, I think, uh, anyway, the, the quote, and I've used it several times and I absolutely love it, is, you, you know, you can't, be like just be kind to people because you don't know you don't know what what battle they're like everybody's fighting a great battle yeah so be kind to people because everybody's fighting and if we could all just sit here and realize that at some point in your life you're going to go through something that's going to be called grief or loss and if we believe that closure is a myth that means we're all carrying that around with us in in some way shape or form and that it could come out in some kind of pet peeve, 
you know, the person you sit next to in the office drives you nuts. You don't even know if the reason that they drive you nuts is because they're, you know, they're dealing with something. Right. There's just so many applications for this kind of uh, compassion. Yeah. And, and I think it's timely around this holiday season. And I think, I think once we can, once we can accept the fact that, that closure is, is a myth and it's unrealistic, um, I think that the assumption that follows, um, you know, we can, we can do away with that as well, which is that, um, once you have closure, then you can, you can move on. Right. Right. Like, I think you learn to manage, as you said, I think you learn to take that next step and, and you, you learn to live that, that next day and that yeah. next moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, I don't know. It, I could get, I could get going on this all day, <laughs> you know, just because like there's so many, it ties into so many other myths, I think. It does. And, and all these like, um, uh, these different things that we, that we shame people for, Yep. you know, that being one of them, um, mental illness, especially within the church. And, oh, and yeah. we look at all these things as, as like a weakness, you know, <laughs> or like, Oh, like just get over it, mm-hmm. you know, just get over it, move on. And like, come on people. It's not a weakness. This is, this is human nature. That's right. And if you don't feel something in that moment and, it, and you're not struggling, you're a sociopath, <laughs> you know? So like, Human human nature is to be uh, a communal people, and yep. it, it's to feel and to to love and to you know. And so, if you're not feeling something, that's a problem. That is a huge problem. No so. man, I, I completely agree. I think that's really really well said. And I think that you know, one of the other things that this kind of focus in an episode like this hopefully will produce is a desire to take those openings that never close and, and find a way to uh, a new solidarity with the people around you. Like that's actually where we end up truly um, starting to connect when we realize like, oh, you're not just a, oh, we're all broken people, you know, whatever. That's just lip service. But like when I actually start to realize like, you know what, man, like we all try to put on this front, like everything's great and everything's fine. But like at the end of the day, like, there's, there's a suffering in you and there's a suffering in me and there's like unmet expectations in life and there's been heartbreak in life and there's been, you know, fear that, that, that never gets quenched. And this is one of the greatest motivations for friendship. Yeah. One of the greatest motivations for compassion and service. And, you know, I even think of like, you know, when they, you know, we love to, to bring it back to Jesus in fresh ways and I think about how he was called like the man of sorrows. Yeah. Why do you think people liked him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because he wasn't like a badass. Yeah. Jesus wept and said so. Right. Like In the I Bible. Mean, so, like I have this feeling that when Jesus would look at people, they would just get the impression like, oh, he understands. Yeah. He gets it. This, yep. isn't, this isn't like some prosperity three-piece suit wearing like shiny toothed <laughs> right. preacher that's like, telling me how to make my life better. It's like, there's like an understanding that comes with knowing like, oh yeah, this, this is hard. Yeah. This is hard. There needs to be a bumper sticker that just says, you know, sometimes life is shit. Yeah. But like, you know what? Like together, we can get through this. You know? What an empowering thing to even yeah. just say to people though. Like I, one of my favorite things, and I don't even know who said it because I know I ripped it off somebody. <laughs> yeah. But like, Try this sometime. If there's just dead space and you just need to make small talk, and this has everything to do with this episode. This isn't a rabbit trail. Yeah. 
just look at the person next to you and just be like, dude, adulting is hard. <laughs> adulting is so hard. And you will be amazed <laughs> how much warmth immediately floods whatever area you're in. You're sympathizing. You're just sympathizing with the fact that like this isn't easy. And anybody that acts like it is, is full of crap. Yeah, they're lying to you. <laughs> and to themselves, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that's what it is. It's like, it, it, more often than not, all the person next to you needs is, like, let's be honest. Like, the last thing I need when I'm dealing with something is for someone to come and just talk in my ear and give me all kinds of advice. Advice. Sometimes all you need is someone just to listen to you. Yep. And just to, to let me tell you about, like, everything that went wrong today. That's right. And get it out of me. Yep. And just, like, have somebody be like, you know what, dude? That sucks, and I'm really sorry. Yep. Hug. Yep. And that, and that, that does wonders. It does wonders. So good, man. Oh, we could keep going episode. on this one all, all day long. Yeah. But it is important, and I'm glad we got Pauline on. And hopefully when the myth of closure comes out, we will be able to... Uh, you know, get her on here and, and dive more deeply into that because man, I'm telling you what, I can think of at least two situations where after I'd heard that initial episode on Krista Tippett on being, and you know, guys go look that up. It's a great episode. Just Google Pauline boss and uh, the episode uh, with Krista Tippett will come right up. It's absolutely fantastic. But that was so liberating. And I remember there was uh, a guy that I know really, really well, whose wife had died a while back and was kind of going through like some rocky, like trying to date and like, uh, just really, you know, and just dealing with it all the time. And I asked him, I, I said, Hey, I just, I just learned this new concept that like closure is a myth. And I wonder what you think about that. Like, I just wanted to ask him a guy that had dealt with like real tragedy and I'll never forget. He was just like, yeah, yeah. He was like, yeah. Like almost like he, he already knew that of course, but like hadn't put it, to those, you know, words before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a myth. You're not going to have closure. Yeah. Or like, you know, people that, people that break up in relationships and they're constantly like trying to like have that last conversation, which turns into the third last conversation that they have, which turns into the fourth last conversation, which turns into like, you can't let go of their stuff or you can't blah, 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 because you're just like, I need closure. It becomes this like prison that you can't get out of because you think you're supposed to have it before you move on. Well, and, and, and there's something to be said for, for, for that saying, um, you know, uh, when you're describing a relationship where you feel like to become one or whatever, and, and you fully give yourself to another person, it's like when you break up, you know, if, if, if the relationship doesn't work out and, and people have described it as like, man, I feel like a piece of me is missing. Like, yeah. If you fully invested yourself in that relationship, then that's natural. And that's, that's exactly normal. what is happening. And, th- and there's a piece of you that, that, that gets taken with them. Yep. And that's just the way it is. And so, that's with any re- good relationship. Or just any relationship a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because, again, we are communal people. We're built to be with one another, to need one another, to rely on one another. We're all part of the greater good, you know. Right. Synchronicity, all that jazz. <laughs> so... It's funny you say that because then that actually means that grief is a symbol that it mattered. Yes. Like it, like it, it wasn't meaningless. That's exactly it. All right. Enough. That's exactly it. I enough, love it. Enough pontification. <laughs> That's what, good stuff. What, what's the sweet music we're listening to? So I, all right. So there's this guy who I discovered who. Um, like you do. Like I do. 
His name is, he has a sweet last name too. Uh, his name's Tyson. His last name's Matzenbacher. Yeah, it is. It's a, I mean, that's a, that's a good hearty last name right there. Yeah. So Tyson Matzenbacher, um, he, he, uh, just writes this beautiful music. It's very like acoustic kind of folksy style. Uh, but he has this really cool story that fits so well with this episode. So his, um, his mom got really sick um, some years ago. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, and Tyson, if I screw this up, I'm so sorry. But, <laughs> um, but his mom got really sick, and he was getting ready to, to move from where he lived. Um, I feel like it was like Northern California. He was moving to like L.A. or something like that. Sure. And she got super, super sick. And so he came back and she was so supportive of him living out his dreams. Like he was going to hit the road and go play music and all this stuff. And she's like, you need to like, you need to go do it or whatever. And so she ends up passing away and he's just like, and he just hit the road, literally just started walking for miles and miles and miles and miles and just walked just so he could be one with nature and just feel the, the, the grief and just feel the loss of his mother. And he wrote this just incredible album about just dealing with that grief, dealing with that loss. Um, and it's beautiful. It's gut wrenching. And it's, um, I thought perfect for this episode. Now there'll, there'll be some newer tunes on there from his more recent stuff, but like this album in particular, um, and, and I'll put all that stuff in the show notes is just, um, it's just a, it's, it's just really cool. It's it's a guy who's just it's real dealing with it in the best way he can through his gift. Yeah, it's real. So perfect, hopefully you guys man. enjoy that. Thanks for always picking perfect music, John. <laughs> I try, man. I'm taking try. it down a notch from the screamo. Yeah, it, it talk about like <laughs> day and night. So last week <laughs> you're getting your face screamed at. This week it. we're gonna we're just gonna lull you right oh, into a so good happy. And, Christmas cookie coma. And thank you guys so much. Uh, those of you that are listening to the show, those of you that are supporting this on, on Patreon. Um, if you want to support us, uh, check out our website, the www.thedeconstructions.com and all kinds of ways to connect are on there. Um, we just, we love this and we, we couldn't do this without you guys. And I almost forgot, I forgot last week, but um, for those of you who are taking advantage of our holiday sale, we'll run that through the new year. So it's $13 for any of our t-shirts on the website, free shipping right now. Um, we ran out of a bunch of sizes because as it turns out, I guessed wrong on which t-shirts <laughs> you guys wanted. We have small inventory. So I am reordering. Yeah. So like uh, I'm reordering a lot of the sizes. So like the 80s throwback t-shirt is back in all sizes. So if you guys <laughs> want that one, um, I will try my best to get it out by Christmas to you. Um, so yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. Yes. Merry Christmas and Festivus and Hanukkah and all that stuff. We, we love you. And uh, hopefully this is a, a pleasant time of year for you. If not, you got a safe place here and reach out to us. We always love hearing from you guys. And for now, we are your ho-ho hosts. Ah. See what I did there? <laughs> See what I did there? Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> dad joke. That's a dad joke. Hashtag dad joke. Hashtag I'm really tired. <laughs> and I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everybody. I don't want you to text me anymore. Little blue eyes in the sun. Keep your words to yourself for a while. Hard eyes, two hand punch. Cause I don't want your words. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.